soul an undiscovered creature climbing on the mountainside. Welcome to Saturday night's main event. It is late November 1987 in the Legacy Series. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the final episode of 1987. I only realized that when I woke up today, and I just want to say thank you to everyone connected to this show. What a year, 1987. We have unearthed, we have uncovered, we have already, in my opinion, caught the spirit that was WCW, the Legacy Series, and we are back on that trajectory. We thank you for your listens, your comments, and today we go out with one of the most compelling episodes of the year. Uh, the word grit means courage and resolve, strength of character. The word resilience means the capacity to recover quickly from difficulty, the ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape. And what we present to you today with Saturday night's main event, in my opinion, is a collection of choices, a collection of examples of grit and resilience, and it is not respecter of what we erroneously call baby, our good guy and bad guy, and what we by necessity call baby face and heel. You are about to watch an episode where a man is surrounded on all sides with an injured leg and no boot on. What do you do? Where a disqualification doesn't end a match. A countout doesn't end a match. A double countout doesn't end a match. What do you do? When you find out your manager has been assaulted and you have to go to the ring by yourself. When your colleague is insulted at the end of the night and he's not there to uh, support himself. Life is very, very difficult. Sometimes your smoke detector starts to chirp and getting a battery to fix it, as I did last night, almost seems like it takes too much resolve. Other times, you get up every day and you live your life and you do your job because it's your life and your job and you probably don't even notice how much grit and resilience is there. Only in a moment of awareness. Only when someone's kind enough to point it out to you. But ladies and gentlemen, when you have storylines that evolve over time, when you have histories that build and you have authenticity, let me tell you the one thing I can tell you. You will always have more resources when you're pulling from a bag of authenticity rather than a bag of pretending to be something I'm not. I am grateful for the show. I'm grateful for the listeners. I'm grateful for WWF 1987, where Andre the Giant is sometimes more courageous than Hulk Hogan, where Hercules can be as courageous as Randy Savage, where Jesse Ventura can have more character sometimes than Gene Okerlund and Vince McMahon. It is a wild and expansive and entertaining and detailed world, and we are working our way through it. Ladies and gentlemen, the hype is back. Grab your shovels because we are digging deeper Today, I am the mystic, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, by God, my learned colleague, Mr. Ms. Fan, The Brain. Greetings, 
Miss Fan fans, welcome indeed to the last episode of 1987 that we will cover. It is Saturday night's main event. It is Bundamania. It is a night where one thing will affect the other and ramifications will be felt from one match to the next. It is also a night where we will be digging even deeper and covering some bonus material that I hope you will come along with us for because it is one of my favorite things and it is something that uh, is really lost to history unless you really dig down and find it. We're going to cover it all today. There is as much grit as you could possibly want. It's great stuff. It's going to be a happening, as a great man would say. I really realize in watching this, it does not have to be WrestleMania for these things to be boiling and continuous. And I went into this. This whole week would not allow me to watch this show, so I had to watch it tired last night at the end of all things, not in the spirit to do it. And they dug me out of the trenches and placed me right back into the spirit of the show based on just the quality um, of what we're going to cover today. Absolutely. We we talked before about how these Saturday Night Mind events... um, they're just very easy and very fun to watch, and they're not uh, mammothly long as some other shows are. You just get into them, you get into that spirit, and you just have a good time, and that's uh, it's a really wonderful formula, I think. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the bonus material? Because this is something that you sent to me, mm. um, I think, last week uh, for us to watch for this week. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, this is some stuff happening a little bit before this show. Uh, it's a few we've already seen some of, but uh, it's really just the barest tip of the iceberg that actually makes it onto um, the bigger shows. Uh, it's uh, the feud of Paul Orndorff and Rick Rude, which begins with Heenan bringing Rick Rude into the family and uh, debuting him in the WWF and bragging about uh, he has the best body, and he's the most impressive, and all this stuff. And, and he really wants Paul Orndorff to come out and um, and uh, clarify all these things, to endorse Rick Rude, to kind of uh, give up his spot to Rick Rude. And, of course, because it's Bobby Heenan, uh, he, he does it in a way, he approaches it in a way as if it's already happened and tries by force of will to make that true. Obviously, that's not going to work out too well, so we're going to talk about that segment. We're also going to talk about Orndorff versus Rick Rude at a Madison Square Garden show in October of 1987. Of course, uh, many people may already know they ran monthly shows at Madison Square Garden for the longest time, and those would uh, very often be televised in kind of a local way. So it's this whole thread of WWF Wrestling, which is fully produced, has all the commentary, has all the storylines touching it, but doesn't uh, sit in the same spotlight. So it's fascinating to dig down to that in the first place. Plus, there's some extra fun Keenan connections in this match, but we'll get into that when we dig in. Yeah, I'm looking forward to covering all of that. It also sits at an interesting time where we have uh, for, for those that don't know, we started WWF The Legacy Series earlier, uh, so we have covered some of 85 and 86, and now 1987, 
And with Orndorff, you got that kind of early WWF Vince McMahon Jr. influence. And then you got in Rick Rude kind of what's going to be 1989, 1990, 1991. Uh, so we're starting to get some divisions here. And I think one of the things I find compelling, and it'll be interesting to get your uh, perspective by the time Bobby Heenan goes out to have this uh, interview with Paul Ondorf, do you think both men have already moved on from the other and now it's a game of like who's going to win the, the kind of public performance of it? <laughs> That's a great question. I think uh, Paul Ondorf clearly has because we're going to see that he, he already kind of had a plan. He had somebody waiting in the wings to come out and, uh, and mess with Heenan. I don't think Heenan, though, like – it never occurs to him that things could not go his way before it happens. Like he's never prepared for it. He's always scrambling when something does go wrong or trying to deny that it happened or trying to smooth it over. And uh, we see him here kind of flailing around trying to make everything somehow sit in his favor, whether it actually is or not. <laughs> That's an interesting perspective because there is something about Bobby Heaney. Like, to be a manager that stands up to Hulk Hogan in this era for so long, you've got to have some kind of will or something that is just exceeds what is realistic. And the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you talking to him like that? Because he's pretty much saying, you're going to tell us this. You're going to do that. And everything that he's telling Paul Ondorf you're going to do is demeaning to Paul Ondorf and lifting up Rick Rude and other parts of the family. But there's a brazenness about it. <laughs> there really is. I think it's funny because Bobby Heenan and Hulk Hogan, I think, share uh, a quality here that uh, neither one of them would want to admit within the confines of the story. But basically, they both will rewrite history in real yeah. time to whatever they want it to be. The difference is, of course, for Hulk Hogan, it works. And no one bats an eye. You know, uh, Andre the Giant was always nasty this whole time. <laughs> You know, as soon as he gets his feet under him, uh, it's always been that way, and he'll tell you up and down. Bobby Heenan the same, you know, I definitely picture he's backstage with Paul Orndorff, and he's like, all right, I'm going to go out there, and we're going to endorse Rick Rude, and you're going to tell everybody he has the greatest body, and Paul Orndorff's like, what? And he's like, well, great, I'm glad we agree. I'm going to go do it right now. Like, he's so caught up mentally that like he's already written the story and there's no time for the story to actually play out. You know, it's just going to go the way he imagines it. And there's no other possibility. I love that. I did it. There, there's a portion of Hulk Hogan. It's the uh, Harry Potter, Voldemort, uh, that they actually share uh, commonality <laughs> and they'd be the last to want to admit it. And it, it's so true though, because it, it is, there's, there's both something powerful in that. This is one of the, biggest errors in wrestling history. And these two men are both trying to be the creators of the shape of it. Mm. And there's also this reality that both of them in the right lens are kind of weasels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're definitely not wrong about that. Uh, we're going to see more of that as we go along. Um, the Hogan Savage feud that we've already talked about and touched on a little bit is going to, have a lot of Hulk Hogan justifying some kind of shady behavior uh, in retrospect and kind of rewriting history. And uh, again, uh, we talked about it's not really a good guy versus a bad guy in this era. It's about kind of who can make their case uh, mm -hmm. and have people accept their reality as their own. 
Yeah, we're going to see it again and again. Hulk Hogan will say in his book that he put the Ultimate Warrior over and went back in the ring in order to bury him. Mm. You know, yeah. he will. He's already building his case against Savage in my mind from the day that he shakes his hand. Uh, he'll pull Sid over the top rope in the Royal Rumble 1992. So it's ongoing and ongoing. And that's the same behavior as this. Like Bobby Heenan, I believe, has found something, you know, better in his mind, something that he can rightfully hitch his wagon to in a better way. And, you know, there's always choice with Hogan or Heenan. You know, I'm not getting rid of you. You can fall in line and take 10 steps back and do what I tell you. I'm allowing you that. Be happy with it. <laughs> but not everybody is Brutus Beefcake, so not everybody will want to do that. Very true. And um, what's great about this, especially to me, is that, like I said, it's like he, he can't even imagine that it won't go his way. And he's, he's here aggravating a guy who once before fired him during an interview when he didn't like what he was saying. And still, it's like he's completely taken by surprise when this happens. Like, he just, he can't keep that kind of thing in his mind. I don't know if he even remembers it. He probably remembers the version that he thought of that he would tell later that, oh, I, I actually fired Paul Orndorff that first time. I, I let him go, you know? So uh, the the things that he chooses to believe uh, make it hard for him to plan for the future sometimes, I think. I agree. Uh, there is someone who does remember Paul Orndorff's response to this whole say Rick Root has the best body and fall in line is I am sick and tired of lying for you and lying to those people. Paul's there because anytime you bring in the people, that means you're about to cross the line and go to the uh, other side of where Bobby Heenan is. And I'm sick and tired of lying to myself. And then, as you pointed out, nice moment. Let me tell you something you've heard before. You're fired. Yes, yes. Great continuity with one of my favorite segments of 1985, where Heenan was fired once before after the... Uh, after the result of the first WrestleMania main event where Paul Orndorff was pinned and uh, Heenan was really had no problem kind of putting the blame on him and uh, talking about how he and Piper had this plan together. And, uh, well, yeah, Orndorff, he's very consistent on both sides that he doesn't take it very well when people uh, close to him kind of uh, turn their back on him. It's the same reason he went after Hogan when they were friends for a while now he's turning around again, and uh, it tells especially how easy it is to turn babyface in this time. All you have to do is pick a manager and go against them, and you will be just beloved once again, no matter what you did before. Absolutely. It's a tough moment because, like I said, Ondorf, Ondorf has not been thriving in the same way as some others. He's more on that Bundy trajectory, yep. so it's hard. life is hard enough by itself. But then when you see someone being actively compared to you, put in your spot, and they might be the next grade of you, that's a very hard position. And Orndorff, to me, is a guy who's when his back is against the wall, he's always going to do one thing, like you just said. He's going to come out swinging, and that's what's going to lead us into this uh, Paul Orndorff-Rick Rude uh, combo of pose-down slash match is the fact that Rick Rude has been endorsed. And Paul Orndorff knows one thing, and that is to fight back. Absolutely. Maybe he looked at a poor King Kong Bundy and um, saw that he was just the third wheel in a feud with the guy who replaced him 
with with Andre kind of sitting over Bundy in his former role, and he thought, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm going to go after this guy. I got to make my own story. Can we talk for one second about the beauty of the fact that Bobby Heenan disappointment of what happened at WrestleMania one and now it's Russell we're past WrestleMania three, halfway to WrestleMania four, where he is still disputing what happened in WrestleMania three and all of this is engulfed in not a single storyline, but a continuity of characters living and progressing their lives in the same universe. Oh, yeah, I, I love it, and it goes again. It's the same mindset, because even in this this promo, while Orndorff is firing him, in the moment, Heenan isn't like, he doesn't get mad about mm. this. He gets desperate about it first. He'll get mad later, and this is always what he does. It's what he did at WrestleMania 3. It's what he did the first time. He got fired. Here in the moment, he's saying, Oh, you don't know what you're doing. No, you have to just tell them what you told me before. And it's like, you can't understand why it's not going this way. If you ask him a week later, he'd probably be like, yeah, Paul Orndorff, he came out and I fired him in WrestleMania 3. We won the match and like everything in his mind. Uh, you know, if you give him a little time, he'll rewrite the narrative and he'll control it as far as he can. But yeah, in this moment in time, it's a great consistency of character. And I like how it carries over from one story to the next, from one year to the next. And uh, that's one thing I love about this era. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's hard to function from day to day. And the higher uh, the calling, the harder the pressure. You know, Bobby Heaton is at the top, top, top of the world trying to stay there in a, in a time where he'll get no appreciation outside of what he creates for himself. So, you know, there's something equally healthy and unhealthy about the ability of these characters to create a world that does not exist so that they can get out of bed the next day and carry on. It's a lot of pressure, I think. <laughs> okay, so Madison Square Garden, 1987, November 24th, looking like an old-school boxing match, like a prestigious fight is about to happen. Mm. Uh, it is host to this Rick Rude-Paul Endorf matchup. Yeah, and I just got to say quickly, I, I don't know if I've maybe mentioned these shows before, but I absolutely love these kinds of shows they're basically like televised house shows with the commentary and the production and the interviews all that stuff they're basically just like what you might see on a house show circuit but i love them and they're kind of like the bread and butter of this era like you'll probably see more of the real wwf the things that people were like paying out of their pocket to see uh month over month all across the country on these shows than you will on any of the specials or the pay-per-views it's great. They used to do loads of these from Madison Square Garden. They would do them from Philadelphia, from Boston, from Houston. They did some from Los Angeles. They did a few, like all these like special um, big arenas. And they would just have these shows. And I don't know, like to me, these shows, they're like the heart and soul of this era. And I wish there was an easier way to kind of watch through all of them. A lot of them are not on the network, sadly. But uh, if you do ever get a chance to dig one of these out and you like this era, you, you will see some fun and interesting stuff that you will not see if you just follow kind of the, the pre-approved major shows of this time period. It's also one more reminder, WWF, the felt sense, the grit, it's not what we, what we pretend like this era is. Mm. Like, it, I am, I'm amazed weekly at how much this product expands beyond 
kind of what I have always called it or what I've heard other people call it mm-hmm. or how it's packaged collectively in our narratives. Yeah, absolutely so. It is much deeper and wider than you would think. I, I was definitely shocked when I came back and really dug into what was going on in this time. Any idea who's in the booth with Gorilla Monsoon? Oh, oh, yeah, you know, I think I might know. <laughs> this is oh. another great thing about these shows, that you see things that uh, maybe never made it to TV for one reason or another. So Gorilla Monsoon is here doing commentary, and who is at his side but Nick Bockwinkle, Bobby Heenan's longest-running, most successful, oh. I will say, client from AWA, which is, uh, of course, swiftly declining. Nick Bachwinkle retired over there. There's a great moment at another one of the, or maybe even the same one, but at one of these MSG shows where Heenan actually brings out Bachwinkle and, like, they hug, and it's like Heenan arranged for him to get this commentary gig, and it's it's a wonderful piece of cross-company continuity, um, the kind that I always hoped we would get when Nick Bachwinkle was commissioner in WCW. It never happened because, I don't know, that – that whole run is just still very weird to me because Bachwinkle is an all-time favorite and he's great everywhere except there where he was like completely checked out or something. But yeah, we got Nick Bachwinkle with Gorilla Monsoon and that by itself is reason enough to watch this match. And when I first heard it, I said, this sounds like Roddy Piper if he was born with as different a temperament and personality as he could possibly have. <laughs> I, I like, like why that. Is he it's like, why does he sound so humble and, and light? And, but I, it's just another thing that equality is quality. At first, I was not, you told me who it was and I was not thinking about it. So your first thought was almost sometimes to, to devalue. Cause like, random person who I have no connection with. But almost immediately, I was like, this guy's got quality. Because he just does. And it, it's, it is interesting to listen to Bachwinkle and Monsoon. So I encourage folks, uh, to give them a listen, um, as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, way to put it. He, he's Piper, but instead of being like kind of a mad street brawler, he's like a, a college professor. But there's yeah. like some sort of connection there regardless. Um, I love the commentary of this match because Gorilla Monsoon, you know, it's very much his gimmicks. Like, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm going to like kind of make a fool of everyone and show how I'm smarter. And he can't really do that to Bachwinkle. Bachwinkle is like the perfect antidote to that because he's there just like – keeping it cool he doesn't get flustered at all and uh he's just kind of talking down to monsoon at times and educating him and oh this thing is not actually the way you think it is <laughs> and uh there's something about it that i really i really like this commentary gang and i wish i wish there was more of it yeah he really good you get the uh impression he's got his hand on your shoulder and he's talking to you in a tone as if he is your best friend like praising you and lifting you up and what he's actually doing is putting you on your ass and like putting you in your place. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a great quality. There's a bit when we get to the match um, where, you know, there's some cheating going on or something. And Bachman was like, Oh, I didn't see that. And Matsu was like, Oh, the brain never sees that either. And Bachman was like, Oh, but you do. And he like <laughs> turns it around. Like Monsoon's the one's like, Oh, so you're seeing this thing that nobody else is seeing. And it's like, Great. It's like, who else turns the table on Gorilla Monsoon like yeah. that? It's very special. <clears throat> and it is that simply put. Like, it's three or four words, and you probably need to go back and think about what he just said, and then you're like, oh, God, he did it again. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, Bachwinkle, um, as a promo, I think is a genius. I think he's one of the best that ever was, and it really carried over well to the commentary here. <laughs> Love it. So this is, we get Rude uh, coming out from the back uh, for him. For the matchup. Oh, I love that back hallway shot that yes. they would do sometimes in Madison Square Garden. And especially here's Rick Rude is like pushing some peasants aside, just like throwing them out of his way. Yeah. It's great. I love it. It is. It's a nice shot. It really grounds us in the history of where we are uh, in the world at this time. Paul Undorf comes out to, a, of course, a much bigger ovation, which will be a point of conversation early in this because we come to find out that... This is not only going to be a match, but before they wrestle, they're going to have a pose down, and the fans will decide uh, who has the better body. Mm, yeah, indeed. Uh, so I forgot there was a pose down attached to this, and a uh, pose down is not necessarily the sort of thing I would go out of my way to see. But you got to admit, the crowd—they uh, were just—they—they they were bananas for this pose down. So I guess it was the right time and place for it. <laughs> yeah, it's also interesting. I think one of the great lies that have that's grounded babyface privilege is that, you know, well, they must be good because the fans enjoy them because the fans are, are most often the most dishonest bunch in the whole uh, federation. And the funny thing is, though, some of this stuff is just our lazy narratives because Bachwinkle is quick to point out that the fans are a horrible judge because they're not going to be fair and they're already booing. Rick Rude before he takes off his robe and they're cheering Paul Wonder before so they don't even pretend. But Gorilla Monsoon too is calling out the fans and saying that it's a biased fan base is not going to be fair. <laughs> That's that credibility we've talked about uh, in this time and place. You know, there's still some recognition of what is real, uh, even if it's sort of dismissed at the same time. It's like, well, it also doesn't matter, you know, because because fuck Bobby Heenan and uh, Rick Rude. So. <laughs> Absolutely. So you, you might, by what I said, know where this goes. You know, Rick Rude gets booed. Paul North gets cheered. And the funny thing is, almost in the same breath that Grill Monsoon is talking about the biased fans and this not being fair, uh, the matchup starts before the bell rings because of obviously it's over and decided that Orndorff is going to win this thing. And Orndorff is getting the best of this pre-match fight. So Grill Monsoon says, uh, something to the effect of the bell has rung, but then the bell clearly rings right after he says it, and he doesn't go on to clarify it because Paul Wendorf has the advantage, and we might as well say it all happened fair and square in the middle of the match. <laughs> it may as well, yeah. Control that narrative as long as you can make it fit. It's going to be all good. Um uh, what I love Paul Wendorf, I've said this a whole lot. Uh, one thing I was definitely noticing in this match, the dude... I'm such a, a big fan now of anyone who can throw a good punch. And Paul Orndorff is throwing great punches left and right in this match. So big appreciation for this guy. I, I One of the reasons I wanted to watch this match is I don't think we're going to have Paul Orndorff around very much longer, if at all. This could be the last time, actually, that we talk about Paul Orndorff. It's so funny you say that because the last two times I've seen him, the image that stands out for me is him throwing those punches in a high-paced comeback, and I'm like, oh, God, I love this. I love someone who can, at will, pick up the pace and the energy of the crowd at the same time when they want to, and often with Ondorf, there's comeback right hands. Yeah, absolutely. He's great at them. That's something I value a lot. I always got him over so easily with the fans, so you, you got to love a guy like this who 
could work both sides of the um, the aisle so effectively. Like, he is a great heel, but hey, he's actually a great babyface as well. There's not a lot that Paul Orndorff couldn't do. And I wonder if not for injuries, and I'm not sure how old he is at this time, you know, how far could this guy have gone even farther than he did? I mean, he already drew some of the biggest houses of all time with Hulk Hogan, but like even more, there could have been more that he did. Absolutely. Um, I'm wondering, like I said, Ondorf and Bundy are kind of on that same trajectory. I'm wondering how many people will find it. It'll be like, oh man, it's unfortunate because they definitely could have done more because both of those, in my opinion, I uh, could have done more, mm-hmm. and I appreciate this now that I see it in the context that we're not going to get a lot more Orndorff that you provided us with one more time to have this conversation. Yeah, I hope people look at both of those guys and say, hey, I really w- I really wish these guys could have gone on longer than they did in this time and in this place, because both guys will have other times and places later on, but it's never going to quite be the same mm-hmm. as it was when they were here and they were kind of sitting, if not on top of the world, then right next to it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. One more praise real quick for Nick Bockwinkle because, like, there's a snap suplex, and we get a whole explanation of how sometimes the snap suplex can be uh, more effective than the hold the long hold uh, suplex. And it's those little details. I've said that a million times, and I'll keep doing it throughout the series. Like, when you're a kid and you don't quite know, you know, is this stuff, you know, real or is it fake? You know, like, Getting a breakdown from a former wrestler of why the snap suplex can hurt more than the long hold is like, nope, that that's like that's a detail. That's 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 too real for me, man. <laughs> I love that. I think it's in that same conversation where Bachwinkle is talking about articulate wrestling. Mm. And you know if you know me, you know if you throw out a phrase like that, I'm gonna be like popping for it immediately because it's just so like I can feel what you mean by articulate wrestling so well. And like, that's the wrestling I want to see. I know that in my mind before you even explain what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, it just gives that frame to what you're already seeing. And it, it does it so lightly because not Nick Bockwinkle has about the lightest touch that you can get. And that it, there's something impressive about seeing like uh, heavy wielded objects laid lightly by someone like Nick Bockwinkle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great way to put it. I love it. I also love there's a conversation here where Monsoon is trying to make fun of, like, Keenan's jacket or something, and Bockwinkle is like, oh, I find that attire to be ultra-conservative, and is, like, <laughs> so smooth about it, and Monsoon doesn't know, like, he can't get around it. He's used to people who are, like, flustered, and Bockwinkle is just, like, very calmly telling him, well, the thing you're saying is not true, and usually it's Monsoon who gets to do that to the other yeah. guy. Oh, God. I hope people understand how beautiful that is because <laughs> it is like Monsoon is a force of nature, but I don't know that he's a pivot, turn, and gracefully uh, move around you. And like, that is what kept happening is he's put in these situations where Bogwinkle kind of is guarding him in a way that others do not, and he doesn't always know what to do with it. And there's no, But there's no forced nature of... No, I've got to look good and you've got to look bad because it really is a little bit of a lawless world, like I said, where if you can get the better argument, Jesse Ventura is going to, again, just win out ten times to one in the uh, the, the rhetoric with Vince McMahon. So there, there's the world as it happened and there's the world as we have remembered it, and they're not always the same thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely so. And you really you got to love Bob Quiggo's ability to just sidestep. Um, 
this unstoppable baby face force, you know, that comes at him and oh, the world is this way. No, no, oh, I'm not there anymore. You know, where you tried to yeah. smash me down, I'm not actually there. So I don't know. it's I'll genius because down. you are probably going to lose if you collide with this stuff. So just never like, oh, you're over there where I'm over here. Oh, you're over here where I'm over there. That's a, <laughs> that's a very smart tactic. It is, and weirdly, it's very akin to his wrestling. So, like, I don't know, the mind of Mike Rockwinkle uh, is really amazing to me. I don't know. I would love, I don't know when or how, but if we ever had a chance to watch him, Nick Bockwinkle, and talk about it, that would be well worth doing. Yeah, I, they're very intriguing. So that means I think he got out of the booth, because Bobby Heenan will get attacked in this match. And I think Nick Bockwinkle gets out of the booth to check on him. <laughs> this is why, I, I gotta say, in a year... Of uh, Steamboat and Savage, of uh, Andre and Hogan, of uh, Ric Flair being champion of the world, of uh, things happening in Japan that are so far ahead of the game that we still haven't caught up all the way. In a year of all this great stuff going on, this is one of my favorite matches. And a big reason is that so many pieces of Heenan history collide here. Because you were talking about, like, Orndorff is like, early WWF Heenan, like right when he came in, Orndorff was one of his first clients. They were connected very strongly. Rick Rude is going to be one of his most high-profile clients later on in his uh, managing career. You've also got Nick Bockwinkle, who is linked at the hip with Bobby Heenan through the 70s and the early 80s, probably his longest-running client ever. You've got all these things coming together, and then not only that, but yes, when Heenan is clobbered by Orndorff and falls off the apron and hits the floor, Nick Bockwinkle gets up from his commentary job and he goes over to help Bobby Heenan, which just, it like disrupts everything, especially in Gorilla Monsoon's mind. Like he can't let this go for a second. And it's just great connection, convergence of Heenan elements, so you know, for a guy like me especially, that's going to be particularly awesome. Yeah, it's beautiful. I didn't even, you know, the history only makes it better, but just the just the fact that this guy who's not involved in the match gets beat up, and you feel compelled to go check on him, and then it puts us in that weird situation where Bobby, uh, Girl Monsoon will be chastising uh, Nick Bogwinkle for being compelled to check on the health of someone who is not a wrestler who got assaulted. So that's a weird um, argument for Gorilla Monsoon to have to be on the, that side of, but there it is. <laughs> for sure. And again, Bachwinkle's responses are great. He talks about, well, I'm just, I helping Bobby Heenan is the same thing as I was helping old lady cross the street. And he's a, he's a friend. I'm going to come to the aid of him when he's down. Um, just some great responses from Nick, Walk, Nick Bachwinkle that justify his behavior here. Yeah. And Bobby Heenan comes back beautifully with a, chair slinging Heenan who uh, hits Orndorff who's on the apron with a chair it's a, a wonderful shot uh, uh, grabs the leg oh, um, the wildness of that moment with the chair shot this is a match where just chaos absolutely reigns at one point and it feels like there are 10 things happening at once you got Humperdinck is like grabbing Heenan and Orndorff is beating him up Rick Rude is getting involved Everything is everywhere, and then, yes, when Orndorff is trying to get back in the ring, Heenan just limps, just drags himself over from this beating he's taken, and he swings a chair wildly into the back of Paul Orndorff, and that's not something you would see Bobby Heenan do a lot anyway, and it just puts over the chaos and the emotion of this whole situation. 
Man, I would love if a match like this were on a pay-per-view somewhere because I think people would talk a lot about it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a big moment, and it causes a count-out. So Rick Rude wins the match, and Grill Monsoon is livid. And Nick Bikewingo simply says, well, why shouldn't he? Look what Orndorff did to him. <laughs> you know, it's just like, well, yeah, that's right. I forgot that five seconds ago Orndorff attacked him. Yeah, absolutely. Not just attacked him, beat him up while Umperdink was like holding his arms behind his yeah. back, like on the schoolyard. If two kids were bullying another one, that's exactly what it would look like. And those kids would be like, oh, that kid deserved it. But guess what? In an area of actual morality, that probably won't go over well with the teacher. So. <laughs> right. And then at the end, you get why guys like Hogan made it in this era, and Orndorff did not, because Orndorff will get on the microphone after losing by countout and threaten Bobby Heenan the next time he sees him, uh, rather than simply attacking him in the moment, which is actually the babyface move. So Paul North is a little bit behind the curve there by simply threatening him rather than attacking him because you cannot lose face, even if it's from this show to the next. So Orndorff, sorry, but you're a little bit behind the curve there. Indeed, and we will see Hogan uh, give the correct Babyface response to a count out uh, later on. The, the the way that you save that face uh, is actually very violent, but uh, we're going to see it later on. I wonder if Hogan has ever not given that response. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. Um, not to touch a sore spot, but Lex Luger definitely should have taken some notes here about what you do when a match ends in a count out. You don't, yeah, you don't celebrate on the shoulders of other people. <laughs> That's the one I would rather see you act like Hogan. And I, I think Hogan not attacking someone is like five refs holding him back while he tries to. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a miracle if Hogan uh, is stopped from attacking someone that he wants to attack. Hogan, he, he's, he, he's a terrifying guy, you know. I, I would hate to be in the path of Hulk Hogan because he'll do yeah. anything uh, to get at you. Especially when he has his stupid uh, tassels over his eyes. They ain't no telling what's going on. <laughs> I hate that look. I the stupid too. looks of Hogan. You could collect them for sure. It is funny now that I think, though, that when the refs were able to hold him back is when uh, the Battle Royal and Andre, and he probably did not want to be in the ring with Andre. <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah, those refs may or may not be effective, depending on how much he really wants to get in there. Man. So that, friends, is the bonus Paul Orndorff, who has been just just legend in this, selling out with Hulk Hogan in ways that is rarely matched, uh, versus Rick Rude, who is on the rise. We'll see him in the Intercontinental Division. We'll see him vie for the heavyweight championship. Bobby Heenan, Nick Bockwinkle, uh, Gorilla Monsoon, so much a legacy just in that bonus section. Absolutely so. I will, uh, I've already shared the links on uh, LPForums.com. And uh, if you do have trouble getting in, because it seems like LPForms.com is the address when you go there. It's like you don't necessarily get the right page. So uh, if you need to, just go to WrestlingHeadlines.com, and uh, there's a link to the forums right there that will definitely work perfectly. So if you had trouble getting in, that's probably the best way to do it at the moment. Yeah, um, that's and how yeah the links are there. You can check them out, and uh, I think I put them on Twitter as well. Yeah. So... Um, going into Saturday night's main event is uh, November uh, 28th, 1987. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're coming off the holidays, and this is the last episode we will cover of 1987. Uh, we have our, our Spitfire promos of various people. 
macho madness, the, the danger zone meets the twilight zone, stars in the background. Uh, <laughs> macho madness is at his peak. He says he is east of Saturn, west of Jupiter, south of Mars, and north of hell. Yeah, he's really in his space element right now. I didn't think it would be so explicit that he yes. was in the space element, but he's literally standing in space and talking about like the planets that he's near. So that that's why I call you the mystic. You you looked into the future for that one. Yeah, I really. I said the when I say things like that, it's usually off of no knowledge. It's just like, oh, here's a hunch. And when I saw that, like there are actual stars behind him as he talks about these things. Like, oh my God, could you be as Miz fan says any more explicit? Uh, and I got to thinking about the fact that all of these planets, like you need a telescope million, millions of miles away to see them. And yet WWF every week, every month, all these forces are embodied in human beings and they, they take on these forms and they compete against each other. It is almost too much uh, to deal with. And what we have with the promos is a savage Bobby Heenan, Hulk Hogan sandwich. This is the best of the best, the biggest uh whether it's madness multiplied, brain multiplied, power of Hulkamania multiplied. This is always a battle of multiplications on multiplications on multiplications. And how you keep up and contend is partly why we watch. Absolutely so. With Hogan, Savage, and Heenan in one little promo, what more reason could you have to uh, watch a show? I mean, uh, yeah, that's about as heavy hitting as it could get. Yeah, this is uh, this is a star-studded show. So Savage does his thing. Heenan, this we got to we got to say this because we're in a nice place that uh, Miss Van and I are both King Kong Bundy fans, and yep. we, we did again somewhere out there. You can you can see the previous WWF the Legacy series work, but if you remember, Big Blue Cage WrestleMania two, mm-hmm. Bundy gets his shot, and now it's back. It's a rematch. It's his opportunity. I'm already shipping Andre and King Kong Bundy after that lovely photo together. And they're back together. And they treat King Kong Bundy in this episode with respect. Like, I really feel like this is a challenger uh, getting an opportunity. There are so many small moments in this night that I just could not have predicted. And it begins with uh, Bundy. What was it? Bundy? Bundamania. Bundy Omen. Bundamania. Yeah. Bundamania, there it is. <laughs> God, what a beautiful world. Uh, for sure. Um, it's easy to see King Kong Bundy as being on his way out, uh, and he is. And this title shot, we kind of know, is sort of not a real title shot. But you're right, in the moment, they still treat it like a big title shot, because this is a time when when you're on Saturday Night's Main Event, you know the, the nation is watching, and you don't half-ass anything for the sake of being petty. Uh, at this time, that that will probably come later. But in this time, yeah, like once the chips are down, they're going all out. They're not going to hold back on anything. Yeah. And I love that, again, the transitions. This is just, I don't know if it's uh, the the NBC guys or Vince McMahon, but there's some quality stuff. So you got the Bundamania and immediately Hogan steps on it with, there's a, there's a lot of cheap talk, man. <laughs> <laughs> it is great. I just, I want to. In the, the, the bonus match we talked about, there was this one great moment where Gorilla Monsoon, like, talked about one of their producers who was not there that night because he was off, like, getting an award somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I love little comments like that. And you hear them sometimes in this era. You're just talking about the production. 
And it's something that you don't hear a lot of now, but there, there were times back then where he would like single out specific production people and praise them. And like, that's very cool. I like that kind of stuff a lot. And, yeah, I do too. Especially when like it's definitely worthy because they're doing stuff in just such a great way. Yeah. And it's just the power of like it, to be Hulk Hogan, like you said. Like all somebody is using your catchphrase where you need to come on like the screen immediately and step on it. Like Hulk Hogan does not let competition breathe. If you if if you continue on like Bobby Heenan, you have done something amazing. Because Hogan is coming for your throat. Oh, yeah. Like I said, I would never want to be in the way of Hulk Hogan uh, under any circumstances. So, yeah, for Heenan to survive so long is very impressive in and of itself. We are back with Jesse Ventura and Vince McMahon on the call. It is Thanksgiving. Uh, Jesse Ventura marvels at the opportunity to spend Thanksgiving with a turkey in a suit. And Vince McMahon (laughs) sells it very well. He takes one without firing back, which is very difficult for Mr. McMahon, but you got to do what you got to do to put on the show. <laughs> I, I got to, it's such a weird relationship because we know Vince McMahon is like this incredible alpha male, but he was also able to play this role. So I'm always sitting back and I'm thinking, did he not fire back because he couldn't think of anything? Or is he actually just like letting Ventura get one up uh, for the sake of the presentation or maybe a little of both? I don't know. I don't know. Ventura is definitely a guy who uh, pushes Vince McMahon in a lot of different ways. I think it would have to be for the character in the show because nothing that he ever fires back is intelligent, so it doesn't take anything to say it. It's just like <laughs> loud voice, you know, response. That's a good point. You're right. He probably could have come up with just about anything and uh, it didn't matter <laughs> if it was good or not. So, good point. I think uh, this is one of my favorite shows once we get past uh, the early portions of it. I forgot this was on here, but we're going to start off with George the Animal Steel versus Danny Davis and George Steele is back there, and maybe you're, like, as most people, decades later, your sensibilities are like, this is George Steele, Elizabeth thing uh, was not uh, in any way appropriate, but the feud is over, and he now still has an Elizabeth doll, and for some reason, to be outside the program and still doing it just is another, God, what is wrong with this man? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's something that would go on a lot and uh, come up not even just within the context of the feud. There's some match, I think it was on another one of these MSG shows or something. I want to say it was Orndorff versus Steele, and Orndorff, one of his tactics was like to bring out a picture of Elizabeth to distract <laughs> George Steele. And it was like, oh, it was just this thing that was like central to his character, and it didn't go away when he wasn't in that feud. Uh, which is nice, but you're right. Also, it's not very uh, appropriate for him to just be... I don't even know. Like, what would he do with Elizabeth? Um, I don't want to think about yeah. it, I guess. Nah. But what's he going to do in a wrestling match? What's he going to... That's <laughs> If you're a big George Steele fan, like, and not even intellectually, like, oh, I liked his character back then, but you... Oh, man, George Steele's on the show and he's wrestling. I'm excited. I would really like to hear kind of what it is that, that that gets you going about it. Because <laughs> I, it's just like a lot of people cheer him. There was a George Steele sign in, in the front row. So I thought about, you know, somebody got a kind of front row seat and they made a sign, we assume, and it's about George Steele. <laughs> like, who are you? And I'm not, I don't mean it condescending. I don't know how to say it not condescending because I don't understand it. But if there, there's anyone who listens to the show, I'm sure there's been George Steele fans, especially if you grew up in the era. Like, what did you like about it? Because to me, he irritates the hell out of me. 
It bothers me, and I don't like his biting. The, I think it's very rude to the person who puts the turnbuckles on that he bites them and destroys them, and they have to put on another one. So just everything he does bothers me, is, is what I'm trying to say. Well, I, I wouldn't call myself a, a number one George Steele fan or anything, but I, I actually kind of like the animal. Um, I think uh, he could potentially be standing in that little that little space you made for Kamala and for Big Josh and some of these other sort of uh, out-there characters who get over by really committing to whatever weird thing that they are. So, I, I don't know. I have some appreciation for George Steele. And I, I, the reason I bring it up is because I know, like, a lot of people do. So, And I don't fully know about myself why, like you said, one person that behaves somewhere in that realm is endearing to me, and one person just irritates and bothers me every time they do something. Like, I don't know where that line is even in myself, so I'm just trying to explore it. I don't have the answers yet, but there is something uh, that sometimes you fall on one side of the line for me and sometimes you fall on the other. For sure, yeah. There are some things that just irk you. Like, some people love Jim Duggan, I assume. Yeah. Um, you know, but I can't watch one of his one of his matches where he's, like, you know, stomping around and yelling and, you know, it just, it, I can't stand it, you know. So it's just a question of how it strikes you sometimes, I think. I will say for George Steele one thing, like, he commits to his gimmick so hard. Like, his promos are just, like, they're very weird to watch. They're, like, kind of awkward, you know. There's nothing really very stylized about the way he does this character. Um, Or even in the ring in his matches, like, it doesn't feel like a guy who is, uh, you know, kind of, like, intentionally shaping this weird character to a certain point in purpose, and he's just, like, flat out just just super weird to be weird. I'll give you that. I, I see that as well, and I don't think we have done enough either to credit Gene Okerlund in this era, because oh, yeah. how, how do you stand there with a George Steele or Jake Roberts who has a snake and is putting it on you, or, like, the Hart Foundation who just giggle and laugh? Like, he has to be... There's not a single promo that runs like the next one and he is the common denominator in all of them <laughs> gene okerlin is so far ahead of everyone else who has ever been in his job that if mm. there was a mount rushmore it would just be four gene okerlins like <laughs> there's yeah, there's just nobody who's even in his universe like he took a role that most people can't make a thing out of and he made just a legend for himself that he absolutely deserves yeah, you wonder how many people are disgruntled because they're trying to climb the chain. They don't even want to be back there versus, like, making a healthy living and legacy by owning that job. And just like you said, like, who is in who's in the conversation? I guess you compare compare him to that uh, bald guy with the mustache in WCW. But that was also Gene Oakland. <laughs> you know, right. Or that mostly bald guy with the mustache in AWA. Uh, yeah. For well, like 15 years before, like, uh, he's just, yeah, what a, what a history for this guy. I can't even remember who else, like, I think Eric Bischoff did it in WCW before he got to where he was actually going. Yeah, he did it a bit. Uh, I don't, there's a lot of people who do it, like, a little bit, but it's never, like, you don't even notice it, you know? Yeah, like, this guy Craig DeGeorge is running around, and it's like, who the fuck is Craig DeGeorge, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> you know? Gee, man. Yeah. It needs to be said, like, there's so much good going on that we have not had a chance to talk about it. I think that gets pushed aside. But 
with for all the credit we're giving the Bobby Heenans, the Jesse Venturas, the Vince McMahons, the Gorilla Monsoons, Gene Oakland needs to be in that conversation as well. Absolutely. Particularly because I feel like he definitely had a hand in just like shaping the whole tone of this era. Um, I haven't watched this myself, but I've heard the comment that when Vince brought on Gene Okerlund in like 83 or whatever, that was the moment that the product really started shifting from what it had been Mm -hmm. to what Vince's vision was going to be. And Okerlund was kind of like the catalyst of that just from the way that he was able to present the show in a different tone, in a different way. Um, so yeah, you gotta give huge credit to Gene Okerlund. It's funny because when you say that, everything that this era actually is versus what we have thought it to be is embodied in the uh, wonderful slash disturbing behavior and personality and person that is Gene Okerlund. <laughs> like it's the same felt yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very adult oriented. It's gritty. It's a little troubling. Uh, it's smirking and laughing while being serious at the same time. It's self-righteous at times. It's a lot of different things. It's petty. It's large. It's contradictory. It's an interesting thing. Gene Oakland being in the center of it. And it's a job that I don't think many people could do because, like, I watch the promos. Just be mindful on one of these episodes and watch how differently each character, each scene, each setting is that he is placed in. And he's got to still be Gene Oakland and still get something done uh, throughout every single one of them. Absolutely. He's he's assaulted by snakes. You know, yes, they go into the shower to interview a guy once. And he's got George Steele who can barely string two words together. And he's disgusted by the Hart Foundation and all their maniacal laughing. And Randy Savage threatening him before when he tried to talk to Liz and you know, just everything. Like, there's something new. There's some new problem in every interview, but Oakland is always up for the task. Yes, the era where ten people talk at the same time. You know, when they're <laughs> back there. Yep. Uh, Hogan and all his stuff. Uh, the Warrior, Andre the Giant. Like, it's just. And then like Heenan and Oakland kind of have that fiery back and forth. So then there's that competitive spirit between them. <laughs> it's there it's was- amazing. Like. Um, Maybe I'll try to dig this up because I think you and maybe some other listeners would appreciate it. There was a guy who I don't know where he found him, but he had some like Gene Okerlund outtakes of like the little quick promos that they would do sometimes. And they were just like, I love them. I watched them like it was my religion, you know, for a while when they were coming up because there's just something about this guy. Like, you wouldn't even think of Gene Orkelin in outtakes, but man, I don't know. It's just like a little peek into this guy and this world, uh, behind the world. And it was just like, I don't know. It was a really cool thing. I'll try to find those. I think it's that authenticity again, because you yeah. can like it or not like it, but Gene Orkelin is Gene Orkelin. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And he was always like, he was so engaged with it. And like, he was funny and he was witty and he yeah. was all these things. Like, he was a huge character in and of himself. Uh, and I don't know, it just made him stand out by a mile when a lot of times, like, these people who do this job, they're just like a, a human mic stand, basically. You know, they don't add anything. I had zero Gene Oakland notes, for the record. But this is the power of this man in this moment. And I just hit, it just hit me, the, the cruel irony of Vince McMahon wants nothing more than to be anything except professional wrestling. And I think the thing that made him more than professional wrestling 
and glamorous and just everything that he could ever want to be were people that came out of professional wrestling. Jesse Ventura, Bobby Heenan, Gene Uckland, they're the ones that made it larger than life. And then he went away from professional wrestling to find people outside of it to make it something that it's not. And they couldn't do it the way that people actually within the business were able to elevate it. Mm. That's a weird thing, and that's cruel irony, but, man, there's something true inside of that. Yeah, there, there really is. Uh, last thing I'll say about Gene Okerlund, uh in an era of no script, of barely even getting bullet points, um, Gene Okerlund is probably the best improv partner that you could ask for. I can't count how many of these short little promos where I've seen him save somebody's bacon by like getting them back on track or covering from them when they're, you know, in a weird place. So they don't know what to say next. And just like, yeah, Gene Oakland is a guy who was working his mustache off to make every show, every <laughs> scene better. So bravo, Gene Oakland. Working his mustache off. That's great. <laughs> Earning every cent of that uh, hotline money. He had oh, yet. yes, absolutely. The legend of the hotline. <laughs> God, that is so true, though, improv. Because you got between people who don't know how to do promos, yep. people who are probably drugged out, people who are probably on other planets. Like Again, it's just – and then there's Gene Erkelin anchoring everything back to something. Man, great stuff, great yeah, stuff. Absolutely. Danny Davis is also someone very consistent in his character. I, I really like the idea that he uses this object throughout the match but because he's a former referee, he knows how to put the referee on the other side of his body and continually get away with it. Yeah, that's probably the best thing about here, Ventura, making that point um, that uh, that Danny Davis knows how to cheat better than anybody else and just, like, openly admiring him for it. So I appreciate that. Uh, the bloom went off the rose quickly with Davis. I've talked about how he was one of the most over heels in the company at one point. It's not really true anymore. You know, it faded quickly once he actually started wrestling. But still, you know, you can appreciate the little things about him. Yeah, and Jesse Ventura makes every match better by his frames. Another one is, uh, what's his name? Uh, still does a drop toe hold. For, um, and and he, Jesse's just like, who's training him? Somebody's training him. <laughs> And it's just a moment where I don't decide storyline is going to happen, but I'm like, oh, well, who is training him? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a valid question. I think back in uh, 85 again when they had TNT, uh, which is show, Tuesday Night Titans, a show that I love. I want to say they did like a whole thing of uh, George Steele getting therapy and like learning how to talk, I want to say, because like for many years, and that's the part we don't see, George Steele was just like a monster heel who was just like wild and just going crazy in the ring all the time. And this this tail end of his career is when he became like more human a little bit. So it's just a weird story of George Steele. Um, and yeah, I like that. Like I noticed that too with uh, who's training in line. Yeah. This match ends with an absolutely nonsensical uh, call where, uh, what's his name? Danny Davis is picked up by Steele. His legs kick the referee and he is disqualified for it. So Joey, Joey Morella is starting to build a case against himself and make me question the finish at WrestleMania 3. <laughs> and we will hear uh, more about that as well, I believe, uh, yes. sometime in this night. So it's a good point. So then we got, of course, after the match, Danny Davis comes back and attacks uh, Steele so that he can get beat down by George Steele, and we can all leave happily ever after. Gene Okerlund is with the Hart Foundation, uh, this is a very good 
a Jimmy Hart promo. So he just he's just getting his lines and he calls Elizabeth the daughter of the devil. <laughs> That's something. And he says that she's just about hitting uh, a savage with the a guitar. Uh, they're just lucky Honky Tonk Man doesn't play the piano. <laughs> That's a lie. He had his, uh, yeah, he had his uh, open mic night <laughs> notes prepared. Like, he was ready to get in there and uh, do his tight five. So Yeah. Uh, I'll say Jimmy Hart, I, he's not top-tier manager to me. But the things he does well, he does very well. You know, he's got the small frame. He's got the annoying voice. Um, he's a manager that... Uh, I appreciate that he, like, you could chase him and he he will actually, like, just run full speed away from you. I think a lot of managers didn't necessarily have that uh, mobility at times. So you could do things visually with Jimmy Hart that you can't do with anyone else. So I, I appreciate Jimmy Hart, uh, especially in this time and place, and to say nothing of uh, some later abominations, which uh, are not worth speaking of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as the Hart Foundation who have been kind of vile in their uh, mid-card behavior, who are refusing to back down. Like, they're they're claiming this for everything they can get out of it. Mm, so yep. th- this is a great moment for for especially Bret Hart, but then for Neidhart and Jimmy Hart as well, who are coming along. But they they know Honky Tonk Man is kind of, the, for whatever reason, is the big deal in the group, but he's off. He's out of the picture right now, and this is a chance. Uh, just own everything you did and just and take the heat that comes with it. Mm. Okerlund calls them the sickest men in the sport, and uh, <laughs> it's another um, good moment for our man Gene Okerlund. Yeah, never, never one to exaggerate. <laughs> Gene Okerlund. Never, never. Oh man. Savage and Elizabeth. Gene asks her how she's doing. She says, uh, "Still in some pain, but I'm fine." And Savage immediately says, "I'm not fine." So. <laughs> Yeah, no. It's probably about as many words as you should give Liz to speak in a promo. So yeah. it's for the best. Yeah. Savage, um, he always is in this era because he's still wearing his short trunks, but man, he's just spring loaded energy. Like it is just coiled up inside him. Man, everything about him, the way he moves, the way he acts, like I don't know how this guy didn't explode sometimes. Yeah, Gene Arkland tells the man of the fire element to take a cool head. <laughs> and uh, Gene, uh, Savage immediately says, "Chill out, Gene. I'm in the danger zone." So that's that's a no for the record <laughs> on that's, that. That's where uh, he lives. Yeah, <laughs> it really is where he lives. Like there's a, there's a moment where I can't even understand what he's saying because his teeth are almost like chattering at the 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 opportunity to get out there. And in this matchup, there are some moments we'll get into in a moment that just so define both Bret Hart and Randy Savage. And so I'll talk a little bit in a minute or two about desperation. And what I have realized is Randy Savage loves to be desperate. Mm. And it's probably because that's his natural script anyway. Uh, but I will get into that in a few moments. But Randy Savage, no, if, you want to, if you want to feud with Randy Savage, try to alleviate his pain and make life a little bit better for him. Because that's the worst thing you can ever do for this character. And he will not allow it easily. Yeah, yeah, no, he he lives uh, in that danger zone. That danger zone doesn't allow him to uh, move away from those kind of things. You know, it wouldn't be danger if he, he weren't so close to that all the time. Yeah. So this, fans, is, a, is an unusual match because you have the guy who will lead up the new generation and Brett the Hitman Hart. 
taking on the guy who kind of is faded out for that generation to come. But they're in this golden era and they're taking each other on in a matchup that, you know, is not it's not a famous pay-per-view match for, per se. But I think it's a very interesting match about for, by two men who like to plot out matches. And I think it's clear to me in this match that there's some architecture being done in this one. I would think so. But it's interesting to think about just how much was really being considered at this time because you look at Bret Hart and you got to assume they had like some inkling of like, okay, maybe this guy could be like intercontinental champion possibly in the future. I don't think there could be a clue that like this guy is going to be the head of our company for a while. So it's interesting. It's like how much of that is already apparent from a match like this and how much is, is going to be only discovered and unveiled later on. Yeah, I think one thing, well, two things. One, these men both like to plan their matches out uh, mm. moment by moment, so I don't know how much of that went into it. But also, um, I was hearing, uh, them, uh, I think, Bruce Pritchard and others saying that at WrestleMania 4, they were trying to break up the Hart Foundation, but it didn't really, they didn't really succeed on their own, so they had to put them back together for a while. So We're going to see that, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I remember that they kind of go their separate ways for a while, but uh, they'll, they'll come back together. And uh, then when they split again, several years down the line, it's going to be a lot more impactful, obviously. I really think, too. So what you have in this matchup is Elizabeth is on the outside, surrounded by Neidhart, uh, Jimmy Hart, Bret Hart. So Savage also is surrounded, and he can't go anywhere. He can't be in the ring. He can't be out of the ring. He's got to be on the movie. He's got to be on the watch. And to me, that is a visual representation of what the paranoid mind of Randy Savage sees all the time. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's, that's a good point, probably. Um, and maybe a little closer to home than, uh, than we might be comfortable with. But, yeah, definitely yeah. Savage's paranoia embodied here in a number of ways. And again, though, most people will be like, "Oh God, this is a this is not a good situation to be in." But Randy Savage, you're just giving him like a situation to rise to because, mm. like I said, if you already see the world like this, when you already see yourself in this situation, then you know it's just it's all invitation for right. the fire element. And I started to think about that because fire element is one I am not that comfortable with. I've had in my own formation of life around people who are fire element who frankly scared and scarred and you think about savage you think about steve austin so many times there is a paranoia Mm. that causes desperation in order to keep that fire burning like it does Mm, Um, and i mean you think about fire and it's the element that can least uh sit still um you you can't have a calm fire yeah. You know, it's not positive. You can have calm water, calm air, calm earth, of course. Yes. Um, but yeah, you can't really have a calm fire. It's not possible. It's always got to be burning and kind of uh, driving to the next thing. Absolutely. The word desperation is a state of despair, typically one which results in rash or extreme behavior. So <laughs> in order to get yourself there, you have to maintain the script that, uh, again, I've always said about it burns everything around you and it often does it historically so but you, it can never be a respect or a person it's going to burn this person as much as it's burning everything around them and savage is going to be a picture of that we're going to see these wild swings from baby face to heel baby face to heel mm. and 
uh, even in this matchup. Like it, it would make sense if it was anybody else. Well, maybe Elizabeth just doesn't come to ringside since, like, you know, she's been attacked and there's like three of them out there. But you know, it's not going to happen, and you know, we're going to find ourselves in the situation that we do, which is uh, a really good matchup, in my opinion, but one that they got to mind the floor and the ring the entire time because there is that risk and threat at all times. I mean, you know, if you left her in the back, he'd be even more paranoid. Yeah. So you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. I want to um, I want to do a little tangent a second um, okay. because you made me think of something and I want to challenge you a little with your uh, avatar knowledge of the elements. Where do you put Roddy Piper in the the scale of elements? Oh man. Okay. I definitely cannot just like on the spot. Um, Fair enough. I get it. Big. The reason why I thought of it is we were talking about fire. We were talking about desperation. And I was just thinking about Roddy Piper and how, like, my gut first was to say, like, probably he's fire because he is so fiery. But he has so many parts of his career where, like, when he's burning hot, it's one thing. But when he's not, when he's not desperate, when he doesn't have some kind of fire under him, he's something else. And it's not fire. I don't know what to call it. So I don't know. You, you don't have to answer right now. But I just thought of it. I wanted to say it. Um, we will see Piper again, so we can hold off on that conversation. But I, I want to at least put it out there and uh, make you think of it. Yeah, because I think there's something uh, beautiful in that we can look at these like, everything that every tool that we use on the show or tools that you can use in your life. I would say use it to the advantage. Use it to what makes your life better. And mm -hmm. so if it's saying. Like, my trait is authentic, and it's all that I can be, and the more that I do it, that's my strengths and my values, and I thrive, and I flourish, and I expand, then say it like that. But sometimes the trait that you feel like you are is tied to the upbringing and the social situation and the trauma and the life events. Mm. And if if it's bad for you, but it's familiar, and it hurts like hell to try to escape it, so you run back to it, you probably need to take an idea that that primary trait doesn't always have to be the trait that you are. And I don't know what I would say about Piper, but I know that the fire element is partly, this is a guy who lived on the streets. Yeah. This is a guy who would say, if it wasn't for, for professional wrestling, I would be dead or in jail. This is one of these guys that, you know, is probably going to die young. Like you just have that sense as a Brian Pillman feeling. It's a lot of people mm -hmm. that just like, Oh my God, they're not going to live for so long. So again, like the hardest thing that you can do is to get outside of a negative script because number one, you don't even know you have it for so long because it's all that you've known. And then by the time you know it, like if I can breathe in my negative script, but I can't breathe on higher ground because I'm not used to it, I'm probably going to dive back into that script. So I think that there's fire, but I definitely agree with you. There's something else that Piper sometimes touches and I don't know what's primary and what's not, but I think Piper is, a more complicated figure in that regard. He is, and it makes me think also, what does a fire element do when it's tired of burning? What does mm. it become? You know, I don't know. We'll, we'll think about that as we go. Uh, as for this match, I want to say, yeah, it's a pretty good match, but you look on paper, Randy Savage with Bre versus Bret Hart, you probably think of something better than this, and that's because both guys have, you know, such a big reputation and maybe there's a match I haven't seen, but it seems to me like they never met up at quite the right time. Because here, Bret Hart, um, he's pretty good. 
but he's not what he's going to be. And we talked in the forums about how Bret Hart kind of got better year over year in the WWF. So he's about 10 years from his peak at this yeah. point. Um, and then I'm pretty sure they met in WCW, the Legacy Series, but I barely remember the match because it was in 1998 and Savage was declining noticeably at that time. And, you know, it's Bret Hart in WCW, so it's not going to be the best. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I would have loved to see a Bret Hart-Randy Savage match in, like, 94, 95, 97, even somewhere in there. I think there's such a classic between these two that probably never really happened. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's like a hidden Savage Brett match out there. And I would love for that to be true. But I don't think they ever necessarily met that I have seen in the right time in the right place. Yeah, this was definitely not going to be Bret Hart's uh, peak. Right. So, but I think this is a really good match for me in the storytelling of it. It not is. In the, it well, is, yeah. Well, what you would expect from Brett, it's not a technical, because right now Brett Hart has almost every foundational move that he's going to do already down. He just doesn't have the 10 to 20 to 30 iterations that are going to spin and spiral off of it to make a unique match that's only Brett Hart's. For um, sure. And, I mean, this has got to be his first high-profile yeah. singles match, you know, Big that deal. he will have, yeah, on this level. Certainly the first that we have seen. And with this caliber of opponent. So, yeah, you can't expect him to have everything he's going to have. Yeah, I will say for later, the idea of Bret Hart to me is almost an architect and a bricklayer. Mm. So the architect, you know, is the one who's going to give you the blueprint, the savvy engineer. But also he's the pattern finder, creating kind of the capacity for what can happen. But then he not only has to lay the blueprint, but he goes on the ground and actually lays the brick and makes sure it all lines up because he's also the guy wrestling the match. Mm. Um, so we'll get into Bret Hart a lot more uh, in the in the future, in the years to come, but also in the eras to come. Yeah. But what I liked about this is again, I felt kind of the threat of the Hart Foundation in the match, right. and then when the when the boot comes off and Savage is just scraping and crawling, and it, it's this thing like Savage is hunched into himself. And Bret Hart has the advantage. You got an injured leg and a boot off. But I'm like, no, Randy Savage cradled with an injured leg and a boot off is the most dangerous Randy Savage in the world. And you need to be very careful he doesn't get his hands on you. Yeah, a cornered animal uh, is the yeah. most dangerous one. And Savage, yeah, was definitely um, feeling that here. Uh, it, it is a really good match. It's a unique match. You don't necessarily see a match exactly like this very right. often because... Yeah, for a lot of this, Savage, he can barely stand, and, you know, he's selling it so well, and Bret Hart's going after it, but you got to deal with the fact that Randy Savage is so dangerous when he is backed into a corner. So um, I do like the unique aspect of this match very much. It, it is a very good match. It's also Savage getting a win with a roll-up. Mm. So it's a Savage who's on ascension and needs to do nothing but win but also does nothing but make Bret Hart look good for the, having the match. Yeah, I mean, nothing could have been worse here than Savage, you know, making a comeback and suddenly he's fine and, you know, he goes up to the top and does the elbow and, you know, very lame would that have been. Uh, complete disrespect to everything they kind of built up in this story. So I'm very, very glad that they did it the way that they did. Yeah, and I will say one more time, because this is a much smaller scale, obviously, in WrestleMania 3, but without planning it, really. Hmm. You know, every time Hogan's going to have a Hogan-Andre style match, like Hogan-Andre, Hogan-Bundy, and to me, they're both good matches, 
Like, there is a Randy Savage having a Randy Savage match in this era at the same time on the same card. Mm. And I love that he is ascending in the Hogan era without in any way becoming Hulk Hogan. Yeah. This is not the Ultimate Warrior in 1990. This is something completely different. Yeah, Savage was very unique. And I kind of like, on the one hand, I'm like, you made friends with Hogan, but now you're out on your own. So that's another, you know, Hogan necessarily isn't that supportive. But... Um, I'm kind of actually grateful for it because we're going to see too much of Savage as an accessory to Hogan in time. And uh, the fact that we're staying far away from that at this time, that we're letting Savage really be on his own, uh, is actually, I think, very beneficial. I agree 100%. It's also that authenticity and reality because just because they make the mega powers doesn't mean they don't have other things to be doing at times that doesn't involve each other. Mm Mm-hmm. It's an era where you can do more than one thing in your life at a time, you know, which is funny because we talked about how they like to kind of repeat uh, their their main points over and over and over again. But beyond that repetition, there is also a layer of nuance that I appreciate a lot. Yes. So Gene Erkelin is with Bundy. Bobby Heen says, you must stand there, shut up, because I have something to say. <laughs> Bobby <laughs> Heenan and Gene Erkelin is definitely – people talk about Heenan and Monsoon – First and foremost, and God bless them, but Heenan and Okerlund is something absolutely special in and of itself. You know, this is a relationship that goes back to the early 70s. These guys working together and uh, just being very close, and they just have beautiful chemistry all the time. Yeah, so this is, again, a playoff. We've seen this kind of before. The body Heenan has a surprise, and it's a big surprise and a huge surprise for later tonight. <laughs> and uh, I did think it's a little funny because... Every, like, Vince McMahon, Gene Okerlund, everyone's like, a big surprise? What could this big surprise be? And I'm like, okay, he said this on the last Saturday Night's Main Event, and it was one thing. And what do you think? It's going to be the same thing again. And guess what it was? But it was a complete surprise to uh, all these baby faces here. I think Vince really does embody how he wants his fan base to receive the product. (laughs) You know, everything's a surprise. Even if we did it last month, you'll still be surprised. Yeah. That's a great call. It's something I never exactly thought about. But, yeah, Vince McMahon uh, trying to embody the reaction that he expects to yeah. get. Is, uh, I think there's a lot of legs behind that. And uh, it will become more pervasive as the company progresses. So we'll, we'll, we'll watch it for sure. Yes. So I will quickly say I don't know why this came up. At this moment, and this is something I think it's why WrestleMania 4 was magic to me and other times. But TV shows often, when they're really, really, really special, and it happened when we went from the ring back to Gene Oakland. This is Saturday night's main event, and its patterns and its characters are becoming so familiar because we're calling so much of it. I just wrote down the word place, and that some of the greatest TV shows of all time simply create a space and a place that you don't want to leave. Mm. And that is so much like I fear leaving this era, not even for what is to come after it, but you have created a world that I just want to sit down in and live in and not leave. And I don't know all the time the formulas that get you there, but if you can get someone addicted to like that space and the characters in that little world and where they are and what they do, then you won the battle. Like you're creating a space that someone will run to instead of run from. Mm. That's a great point. Yeah, 
I love that feeling, for sure. You definitely get that in this era, because it's so alive, and it's so uh, electric that you just you, you feel like you're living vicariously in it. So I totally get you there. Yeah. So this is world title matchup on the line. It's uh, Bundy and Hogan. Miss Fan has already let you know. Uh, the big surprise, the huge surprise will unveil itself as Andre the Giant, and he's going to be at ringside with Bobby Heenan. Uh, for this matchup, this return match from WrestleMania 2. Yep, yep. Is he as iconic here in his outfit as he was at the last show? Or I think he's a, he's a little more laid, he's deceptively laid back, a little right. more laid back. Yeah. But my God, is it a deception? And I we'll see what we'll see what we say when when Andre uh, fires up. But it was one of the most it was is it, it was so intriguing to me because. Mm. Andre wants Hulk Hogan, like in our false narratives, we would say that only the babyface wants a heel because Andre the Giant is a man who feels like he has been screwed over six months ago and he has still got to get his revenge on the evil Hulk Hogan. Mm. And they give him space to live and behave like that in this matchup. We, we've talked a lot um, over all the course of our shows about the value of a heel uh, who is willing to... You know, as they say, show ass who's willing to look foolish. But sometimes I think you get a heel that should not do that. And Andre the Giant is absolutely that. Like, he is different from other heels of this time for that exact reason. He is not the fool. He is not uh, necessarily the coward or anything like that. And um, he is treated differently. And it is very much to the benefit of what we're seeing here. Yes. Okay, so we do have a Hogan promo, and I need to – we'll come back to that. But this is also important because Hulk Hogan, I think, in plain language on this show, gives us the formula for hulking up. And, again, if you want to know what why this era is so successful – so, first of all, Hulk Hogan does not care that it's going to be three on uh, three on one. He immediately says to Genius, three versus the 24-inch uh, gun show or whatever the hell he says – but, like, again, though, completely spinning it. He, he, there's a rhetoric of Hulk Hogan. You can like it or not, but there's some. if you want a little bit of success, there's a little bit of that. Don't overdose on it, but there's a little bit of that that will get you where you need to go. But then he also introduces that beneath, I think his, I was going to go back and get the quote, but I didn't. But beneath his left ventricle, I think he says, is a um, secondary survival system pack. <laughs> And that is Hulk, that's hulking up is what that is. But that he tells you what it is and where it lives. And my thought when I was listening to it, and I wish I had the whole quote, is can you imagine in a world where no one has ever been introduced to a generator and everybody on a block loses their power and one house, all of a sudden everything kicks on and nobody else has power? Like all the ways you would marvel not knowing what a generator is at that house. Mm. What makes Hulk Hogan Hulk Hogan in this era is that he has a generator that nobody else has when we've never heard of generators. He has a fucking, let me turn my page back over, uh, secondary survival system packed beneath his left ventricle. And so you want to talk about why Hulk Hogan is over, why the live crowd loves him, why the fans connect to him, why it goes on and on and on is because it's a man who willingly tells you. I don't even begin until my second system jumps in, bumps up. And what is that? That is the that involves the fans. It involves the promises. It involves the prayers, the vitamins, 
So I cannot even survive without this live crowd like that. So he has he, he brings them all into his narrative and gives them a structure to exist in. And I was thinking wildly as all these thoughts were coming to me because I never knew Hulk Hogan laid out this stuff in plain words. <laughs> if somebody could have destroyed the generator for one match, so like they, they found that ventricle or what, that uh, power pack and they cut off his ability to Hulk up for a match. I don't know. It, it might would have to be when he's leaving to make a movie because I think he would have to lose the match and go out on the stretcher and come back. Because he could not win the match because then that would be admitting that he can win without hulking up and the fans and all of that, which hurts his legacy. So I think he would have to lose the match if you could convince him that you destroyed his secondary uh, pack and his ability to hulk up. (laughs) Eventually, uh, we will see a man named Earthquake sit on Hogan's left Mm. ventricle several times. Uh, I think he might have broken that power pack. So there you go. Oh, what year? Is that 90? That's 1990, I think. That could be the moment that we're looking for where things kind of turn for Hulk Hogan. We deserve, like, awards and, like, a, a yearly paycheck <laughs> if we can prove that Hulkamania actually ended by a physical attack on that power pack. <laughs> we we will um, have our magnifying glasses out when we get to that moment. We will oh, we'll solve it for everyone. Oh, man. I like your imagery of Hulk Hogan as the human generator. I can definitely see him with, like, the jumper cables and his teeth just, like, powering a house at this time. I'm going to read you my only note on that promo. Hogan is coked up to the max and ready to go. So that secondary system may be something a little different than he's letting on. Oh, God. And the beauty of it is that both of our takes are probably true. (laughs) Oh, my God. I am close to tears, folks. <laughs> this is a beautiful, beautiful world that I never want to leave. <laughs> I'm so glad we're doing this, finally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Honestly, we're all going through shit, so I don't talk about it. But this this week sucked in every way, and I am legit about to cry for this Hulk Hogan promo and your take on it and my take on it. Oh, my God. This is good stuff. Okay, right, Hulk Hogan. Yes. So we have Hulk Hogan versus King Kong Bundy. Like you said, WrestleMania 2 rematch. It's a, it's a big deal. It is, for sure. It is. And, and it, again, Hulk Hogan in this era, you can like his matches or not, but they're more dynamic. Everything he does, yeah. he's actually alive and awake during it. And not, you can clearly, I don't know what going through the motions looks like, except to say go watch a certain match. Hmm. But he's not doing that here. And he's bumping with, uh, Bundy and they're both popping off of each other. They're testing each other out. They act like they're alive and awake and they haven't done this 62,000 times. Like this is still <laughs> consequential. And man, I just, I just love it a lot to see Bundy get this kind of shine because what you're going to get is a decent matchup where neither man looks a weak, but you're going to get Andre the Giant. Hulk Hogan is going to kind of get that big surge where he's about to win the match and Andre the Giant is going to trip him. And you get a bell in this era, it's the obvious thing because everything's a DQ or a count out. Mm. So you got a bell, and you got Andre is just raging, raging to get in the ring with Hulk Hogan. And the the thing is, if you watched and listened to us on Survivor Series, the fans are fucking hungry yeah. to see Andre and Hogan. So the fans are actually, even though they're not cheering Andre, they are cheering his impulse to get at Hulk Hogan. 
And then we get this odd ruling, which is fantastic because it's so other-minded. That's not a DQ. It's simply a Andre the Giant will either leave ringside and Bundy can challenge for the belt or Andre can do what he's going to do, but Bundy loses his opportunity. So you got Bobby Heenan masterfully pleading with Andre, but Andre only hears you if he wants to. Bundy is pleading with Andre. And you got this moment where we're just allowed to watch for almost a minute the the valid rage of Andre the Giant, who feels like he got screwed, and the fans are going to cheer when he's going towards Hogan and boo when he's leaving ringside. Mm. And Andre is powerful. Bobby Heenan's powerful. Bundy's powerful. Andre assaults a cameraman, which is outside of this whole thing. And you just watch your world disappear because you can't see anything because he engulfs the camera. It's just it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal stuff that matches the charge of what is going on in this moment. Mm, absolutely. A few points I want to make about this little bit here, because it is awesome. It's incredibly tense. The fans are just pouring energy into it. Uh, I like that this is pretty much the exact reversal of what happened at Survivor Series, because there mm-hmm. it was Hogan. They made almost the exact same announcement. You need to leave, uh, or the match is going to be awarded to the other side. Hogan didn't want to leave. Andre doesn't want to leave. These guys, they want to get at each other. Like, they're selling it in a big way, and the fans are eating it up. Uh, point number two, we talked last time about Andre in the suit. I got to shout out Andre in the suspenders, because that's the fashion choice that yes. puts him over the top here. When that huge jacket comes off, looks like it could cover a car. When it comes off, and he's got those suspenders on. I don't, I'm a mark for that. I am. Third point. Keenan and Bundy are begging, practically on their knees, for Andre to go, and it doesn't look like he's going to go at one point. It's a very underrated aspect of all of this, that Andre was often not totally cooperative with Bobby Heenan. Andre kind of just did his own thing and let Heenan tag along. Heenan does not have control of this guy. Andre is not brainwashed no matter what. Hogan might have tried to claim Andre is very much acting for himself here, and Heenan is riding the tiger like he can barely keep this situation together. All he wants is to get the title off of Hogan. All Andre wants is to fight Hogan, and these goals are not coinciding at this moment, so it is a great moment of tension between everybody. Absolutely. Those are just a million great thoughts because – why the, the choice of me watching a show versus not watching a show is what you just described of Andre. Because if Bobby Heenan can just say, oh, go back, and he's like, well, I'll go back. You don't need me to watch that. It's so overly written, overly done, that it, it, it works itself out. It doesn't even need an audience. But when Andre the Giant, really, you don't know what he's going to do. And he's, it's character-driven, it's authentic, and so smart of you to compare this. I, had not, I did not think about Survivor Series, but... Is the exact same thing. Bam Bam, whether he speaks or not, is, uh, he's pleading with Hulk Hogan. Like This is his moment. And they almost behave for the, the same amount of time, which again, though, kind of says they got about the same amount of character. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're in similar places. And that there, there are some nuances here that I'm not going to keep trying to oversell and overstate, but they they make all the difference. The, the tiny nuances are as large as Andre the Giant, and they're as effective as Andre the Giant. Gigantic, uh, 
potentials buried in tiny details. And we think it's nothing when we just start polishing over or just erasing or eliminating tiny details in our storytelling. Like, oh, I don't need that. Fans don't care about that. Don't need that. But inside those tiny moments is everything that makes it larger than life and worth watching. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, last point for Andre goes to the bat. I love how the company kept finding ways to keep Andre involved without needing him to like have a full on match. Um, because we'll see when he gets back in the ring in 88, you know, there is further um, decline and yet it's Andre and there's just so much you can do with him. I love him just bowling over this camera guy as he leaves. Like what a, what a small but super effective thing to keep the physicality of Andre in the forefront of everybody's mind. Yeah, no, it's it's terrifying, and I'm wondering what peak Undertaker is gonna be, mm. because that's gonna be the closest thing that we get to an Andre, because he was a boss and he kind of did his own thing, and his character was allowed to have some dignity in a promotion where Vince McMahon, Vince McMahon's first thing he does when you come into the company is usually to job you out to everybody to make sure that you're willing to do whatever he tells you to do. Like it is a company where. They can make you greater than any space ever, but they're also going to make sure they hold your dignity in their pocket. Mm. And there are a couple of people that somewhat, somewhat get outside of that. So every time we talk about Andre this way, I don't know how I'm going to feel. Like I keep remembering, I think when the ministry joins Vince McMahon and just different Undertaker moments where and like what is peak Undertaker in different phases going to look and feel like and how will it stand up with what we're talking about right here? Yeah, very storied career, um, so we're going to keep a close eye on that and how it compares to Andre, for sure. Uh, this match does continue, one of two matches which continues uh, past the point yeah. where maybe you thought it ended. Um, I really like the end of this, because not only does Hulk Hogan actually lose by countout, which is rare in and of itself, but the reason he does is that you have Bobby Heenan just, like, with his entire body clamping on to Hulk Hogan's leg as he's trying to get back into the ring and just sandbagging him so that he cannot make it back in before the count. I love that. I love the visual of it. I love Heenan celebrating like he won the title because that's what a heel should do on a countout victory. Um, and then Hulk Hogan, as we said, he has the correct response to a countout finish. He attacks Bobby Heenan bumps him around nobody bumps themselves like Heenan it's great stuff I love the whole finish to this I think it's very well executed it is I've already done mature booking because it's so much outside of what you see in this era or outside of the match continues like it's a it's a big time Wrestlemania return match and we get a part two when we think it's over we get more competition like he said uh Miz fan says it's Bobby Heenan giving everything just to get a count out but Hulk Hogan immediately steamrolls it because Hogan must pose. Hogan must have his moment. But then when he assaults Bobby Heenan, Jesse Ventura says, Hogan knows that Bobby Heenan is a very fragile individual. <laughs> and there's nothing. Yes, he has injuries, but there is no greater lie. Like seeing Bobby Heenan and then seeing fragile individual, but it's so beautiful. Because that is a, that, that, Jesse Ventura knows how to play Hulk Hogan's game. Yeah. He does. Oh, God. And what I love so much is that the loss doesn't seem to hurt Hulk Hogan because, you know, he steamrolls it, he attacks, he you know, he acts out like you're supposed to. But there's a tiny moment later in the night where Gene Erkelin 
says something like, you know, after the countout loss. And he is almost a wince because he wasn't hurt by losing, but the narr- having to hear the narrative, even in one sentence that he lost, you know, because that's what he's always guarding. This is a man that protects the tiniest things. And so no matter what you say here, Bobby Heenan got Bundy a win over Hulk Hogan. And Hulk Hogan has to bear that loss and he has to bear the narrative whether he wants to or not. Absolutely. This whole era, we talk it's not good and evil. It's really just a war to control the narrative, to write yeah. the story from start to finish. That's all anybody is really going after here. Yeah, because think about it. What we said about Survivor Series is that even when Hulk Hogan comes out and rages, we end the show with Bobby Heenan and Andre declaring their victory. Yeah. And again, this time I think we end with Hulk Hogan. Uh, no, we end with yeah, we end with Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. But again, is Hulk Hogan having to face Gene Oakland? You know, stating and how, again, props to Gene Oakland because it'd be a lot easier just to pretend like it didn't happen. But he has <laughs> to hear, no, you lost this matchup. Yeah. And man, it is that narrative, and and Heenan and Andre are kind of winning it. They are, yeah. They they, they have uh, momentum on their side. They have an advantage that people do not often get over Hulk Hogan. And again, yeah, this is the difference between this Hogan and the Hogan that we would both find really insufferable in the 90s. You know, it, it seemed like there was a time where there could be no moment where anyone had any sort of one-up on Hulk Hogan. So... Uh, I appreciate that aspect of this era for sure. Okay, so this might work or it might not, but let me ask you a couple of questions. All right. If just thinking in the narratives that we usually exist in, I told you there's a guy who is world champion, but he keeps losing all the time and he gets mad about it, but it's always count out, so he's lucky he keeps his belt. Would you say heel or babyface? Sounds like a heel to me. Yeah, and that's that's Hulk Hogan's 1987. So, <laughs> like, macro, he's dominating, but micro, he's kind of taking his lumps. And then, this is a Vince McMahon comment on Andre, and I will just say, I'm going to replace Andre with Hulk Hogan. So, I'm going to flip the names. I don't, think, uh, I don't think Hulk Hogan's going anywhere. He wants Andre that bad. Mm. Like, that... That is what we get with Andre. We get Vince McMahon talking about Andre's not going to go anywhere because he wants this that bad. Like, there's a purity in that. Maybe that accidental statement, maybe that purposeful statement, but it's not like, oh, he's such a monster. He's the devil. He's a sore loser. He wants it. Like, that passion is usually connected to the baby face. But that is the commentary we get from Vince McMahon as Andre will not leave. So, again, it's just the level of sophistication and how far it extends beyond the shape that we have kind of molded this time into is just shocking Mm, for sure i i do appreciate that aspect of a heel because there are certain times and places where heels will go to such extremes that it seems like they don't want to wrestle any match like the idea of even wrestling is too much for them and at some point like maybe the right guy can pull that off but at some point you're like why are you a wrestler then (laughs) You know, so for the fact that we have a heel that is not really afraid uh, of Hogan, of any of this stuff, that is actually chomping at the bit to get into it, you know, you, you have to appreciate that, I think. You do. And it's almost getting out of control. 
and I think it's going to continue, but it's going to be Mean Gene who's going to put everything back in its rightful place is only <laughs> Mean Gene. Because I was super impressed, too, because we go to Hercules next, and Gene Oakland lets him know, you don't have a manager for your next match because Bobby Heenan was hurt. Number one, props to WWF because Heenan's not just standing back there with him after getting attacked. Mm. And then but immediately, Hercules goes into this just noble speech about it's the same old story. If we do something wrong, we're thugs, we're this, we're that. But how about when Hulk Hogan does something wrong? Everyone thinks he's an angel. And then Gene Oakland says, okay, let's move on. <laughs> Uh, Hercules, once again, punching uh, above his narrative, his yeah. uh, almost non-existent narrative. I really like Hercules. The more the more we watch him, the more I'm reminded of why. That speech and the immediacy of it, again, when we talk about is this shit real or not, that makes me think the man sits back there in the family with Bobby Heenan, you know, and just lives one narrative that he hears over and over because it's just so immediate. But it's also... He's not like saying it in a mocking voice, like, oh, I'm really lying. I know I'm bad. And Hulk Hogan is not like he is saying it with urgency and authenticity. And he just lost his manager and he's dealing with it in a very honorable way. Yeah. Very eloquent way as well. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's ready. He goes right into it. And, and we're talking about this whole show. Miss Van just talked about it. it's about a battle of narratives. So when Gene Oakland doesn't even try to debunk it but says okay let's move on that said that tells you who's winning right now <laughs> it does they would rather not have the conversation than uh, get into it when they don't <laughs> have the high ground oh man and then bad bad so this is i again i don't know i tried to find like interviews i i don't know why he left in 88 but right at this point they're pushing him to the moon it seems yeah, he's, he's got a lot of focus on him um the main event slot of Saturday Night's main event is a little misleading, as we've talked yeah. about, because they kind of think maybe people want to go to bed at this time. But even so, like, he gets a big uh, spotlight on him here. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It makes me wonder if he had stayed, what what would that have looked like? I know he's here through WrestleMania. Uh, no. I don't know when he leaves exactly, but probably not too long after that. We'll have to watch and see. And uh, if there's anything we can know about that, we'll keep our ears open. I think it's somewhere around summer, and I think his last match, whether house show or I don't know what it is, or TV, is right. maybe against Andre the Giant. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't be shocked. That's uh, it's an interesting matchup for sure. Yeah, so Bam Bam is back there. Um, he's, of course, getting ready for his matchup, you know, and uh, advantage Bam Bam as he uh, preps. So we got Hercules and Bammer one-on-one to finish up the show. Yep, uh, this match is a lot of two big guys kind of bashing into each other like bulls, yeah. uh, which is solid. It's fine. Um, they do a weird, like, the thing they did in this match, I don't know what the point of it was exactly. Because, yeah. like, very early in the match, Bigelow is outside and he just, like, beats up Hercules until they're both counted out. And then he goes back and he says, I didn't come here for a count out even though I could have gotten back in the ring this whole time, you know, and uh, he, he wants the match to continue, so they continue, and uh, then Bigelow wins a match, which was all right. You know, I didn't think there was actually really too yeah. much special about it. And, yeah, I didn't really enjoy the match. Uh, it's yeah. At the point where you've had uh, Savage and Brett and Bundy and Hogan, uh, I don't really think you need another matchup after that. I, I hate to say this, because I think a lot of people won't agree, but I kind of question the legacy of Bam Bam Bigelow as yeah. like, I talked before, 
about how like people say, oh yeah, Vader and Bam Bam Bigelow, they, like they're the same guy. And to me, Bigelow, like he does some cool things, but like he's very far away from that level. Uh, and he has some matches which I love, but a lot of his matches, I, they're just they're just not quite as fun as you think they would be. So I, I'm challenging the legacy of Bigelow a little bit. I still like the guy. I'm still a fan, but I think he is overrated in some ways. And this match, like, I don't know, Vader versus Hercules would have never been like this. You know, it would have been, like, awesome. So that's my opinion. It's funny because we don't talk about anything before we do a show. And sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we bring different perspectives. But the last two times I've watched Survivor Series and this, I have been underwhelmed by Bam Bam, even in kind of his big moments. And I like him as a person a lot. And I like him in some other companies and some other eras. But so far, just just talking about impressions, because I grew up Miz fan. This is a a thing that happened to me as a child. Probably in 92 or 93, I was a huge Vader fan. And somebody told me, oh, you like Vader? You should see this other guy. He's Vader's size, but he does flips in the ring. So that's how I was introduced to Bam Bam before I ever saw him. Um, and that's no, the he's narrative. Not. It is, but I really yeah. question it, you know? <laughs> right now, he's underwhelming. Like, this was not a good match. And even Survivor Series, it was fun, but like I, nothing about it has been like, man, shoot, like put a rocket on that dude and shoot him to the moon. Yeah. And maybe he's younger at this time. Maybe he hasn't come into himself. Um, I would have to... We'll see him in the Million Dollar Corporation. We'll see him against Lawrence Taylor. You know, he wrestles Shane Douglas and others for the world title in ECW. He has a great uh, big career in Japan. He has some WCW stuff. So there's a lot you could judge him by. But so far, I think we're in the same impression of, like, not seeing it yet. Yeah, and it'll come along. Because I remember that first arcade we covered, he wrestled Barry Windham. And I love that match. But also that's Barry Windham, you know, about as good as he ever was. So that, you know... (laughs) Um, so yeah, I don't know. Bigelow, a little bit underwhelming. We'll keep watching him. You know, like you said, his career is really all over the place. So it's hard to judge him just on one particular time and place that he did. But, but there is some worthy questioning of Bam Bam yes, Bigelow's legacy. I agree. Everything is in that million dollar corporation. That era will, will come under. And Bundy's in that too. Yep. But we'll get, um, and just to make sure you know that I'm trying to be, as fair as any human can be to my own, at least subjectivities. There's some football player or celebrity uh, who's in the crowd, and I think he wants to fight Jesse Ventura or wants something. And to me, uh, the celebrity stuff, random celebrities are just as lame in this era as they are in all the eras to come. (laughs) Uh, Celebrities, it's, you can't judge them all by one brush. You can't paint them all in one brush. uh, I should say, so, yeah, this one, I didn't know the guy, like, nothing happened. They just kept showing him, and, like, it didn't mean anything to me. So this, yeah, this was lame. I agree. Yeah, I think what I'm saying there is meaningless is still meaningless. There, there you go. If it had been Kevin yeah. Green, then I would have popped. Right. That guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, we do have a couple of little quick promos at the end. I want to go back quickly because there's one thing I want to mention that we, we touched on but we didn't really talk about. In the Bundy-Hogan match, Jesse Ventura says Joey Morella wouldn't count Hogan down for anything. And he says he is your, speaking of Vince McMahon, he is your version of Danny Davis, which is a line which bears repeating and examination. Thank you. I don't know how that that's in my notes as well, but we, you know, we were, I was probably off in my space element at the time. (laughs) 
Um, that is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful comment. And that, that by itself breaks every narrative that we can imagine, all the lazy narratives, because Jesse Ventura is saying, oh, yeah, by the way, yeah, we're kind of crooked, and so are you. And we're all, again, we're all on the same level. <laughs> you know, you got a Danny Davis, we got a Danny Davis. Uh, Hulk Hogan gets mad and barely storms out, but almost costs his team. Andre gets mad. You know, there, there's an evenness in all of this that is just so unexpected. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have called it. I, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> For sure. And this is what we've talked about this before. Like the difference, you know, our friend CB Mack likes to talk about quote unquote heel privilege, whatever that is. Um, the difference here is that heels will often come out and say, yeah, we're crooked. You know, yeah. that's what we do. We, we admit that we cheat. It's the baby phases who can say, I never cheat, with their hand over their heart, over their left ventricle and their power pack, and they're <laughs> lying, and no one will call them on it. And that is what the privilege is, is that you can just lie to people's faces and get away with it. Yeah, and maybe, maybe it comes down to your fa- if your fandom is something that is more, I want to watch something that's beyond me and beyond what human beings can be. And, you know, I want to be more escapism fantasy or I want to watch something that even if it's beyond me, there's a truth that makes it worth watching that can also transfer back into my life. Because I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that if if somehow I were blessed, which I'm not in any way with the physical capabilities to be able to compete and I had to fight competitors for a living every night and they're the top in the world. It would not take that long before I would do what I would have to do for my survival and success. Mm. Like, I don't know who would be walking around being like, I'm facing a seven feet tall, six inches, whatever, 500 pound man who wants to destroy me. But by God, ethics, you know, (laughs) at the end of the day, and I'm not saying you shouldn't even strive for something, but at the end of the day, like you can take the most mundane job and like six months in, you're doing weird shit that you wouldn't have done on day one. So. You know, your fucking life is on the line. You're probably, you know, so the, the heels just ring more true to me because of what you just said. Yeah, we cheat, but all we're trying to say is, you know, so do you. <laughs> I wonder now if this is why Ricky Steamboat is so mad all the time. If he's like <laughs> the one guy in there who's trying to like follow the rules. And you would be, you would be pissed too all the time if you were the one guy like trying to do everything right and nobody else cared. So yes, especially when you look like you're 50 years old when you're 20. So everybody's always trying to be like, well, it's time for that next generation. And you just like walk in the door and it's like, <laughs> yeah, I think it's so, because you think about like the way stunning Steve antagonized him about yeah. everything. You know, that's that, that conversation. And yes, and again, respect because I, I think again, the beautiful thing about human beings when you really let them be individuals is there's a lot of different versions of people who our needs are different, our responses are different. And I truly believe there would be a few Ricky Steamboats who would be, you know. Yeah. No, I, I do it the way it's supposed to be done, you know. But also, how's your health? You know, how's your blood pressure, Steamboat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a little infuriating is you get all these rules and you're like, okay, I'm going to follow the rules. You look around. The people you like, not following the rules. The people you don't like, also not following the rules. And you're like, what the fuck? You know, it's yeah. like, it, it'll make you a little mad, I think. It does. And then, the, like, the Hollywood blondes are the perfect, like, pressure point for that. Yep. Beautiful stuff. And that's, again, I'm glad you brought that up because I don't know Ricky Steamboat's past, so we don't really know. But he seems like a fire element that comes a different way than what we were talking about with Savage and Austin. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that you gave us that distinction of there are other ways 
Because then that's more of a the external world is causing the fire within me. <laughs> it's like Savage is just like a, a bonfire, like a wildfire, a yeah. forest fire, whereas Ricky Steamboat is like like he's channeled like there's a, a certain way his fire needs to flow and yeah. um yeah i don't know it's it, it makes it interesting yeah and you don't like with austin with savage they all have personal low points they all have career low points i don't know steamboat's story but steamboat is more you know like you can see him being an agent when he's like 77 years old and sure. you know so it's just different. And his fire only happens inside his head. So it makes his head like super big and angry. So that's a different, I don't know how that, that's beyond my expertise at this moment. So he's, he's fire, but with like kind of an earth yeah. outer crust, you know, and the yes. fire only comes out in like certain little volcano places. So yeah. Cause and he's also, he's never going to burn anything except that thing that has offended him. Like there's a direct line, like you said, the channeling, like Steve Austin today has done a thing and he's going to get like a fiery spanking for it. But don't worry. Nobody in the front row is going to even get hot because it's going to be directly at Steve Austin. And his hair is going to be fringed. And later he'll shave his head because of it. You know, it's just that's such a great point. He is he's channeled fire, whereas the others, I don't think. Like Steve Austin would stun Jim Ross. Like Jim Ross is your only friend. And he would stun him. You know, can't control it. Randy Savage and Elizabeth, like nobody supports you like Elizabeth. He still wants to attack Gene Erkelin as a baby face. You can tell he's holding back, but he wants to go off on Gene Erkelin. <laughs> so it, it's it's very different. Good good stuff. Very good stuff. Uh, we'll finish up the show with a couple of quick interviews. We have Okerlin backstage with Bundy and Andre. And man, like the size difference between these three people oh, is God. just what a visual, right? Yeah, I've never seen, I don't know if I've ever seen anything more visually appealing in my life than Andre and Bundy on screen together. I don't know what it is, but there's a spark and a magic that that will never fully be uh, witnessed with what they bring to the table. Yeah, it looks like with these three together, Andre, Bundy and Okerlund, they look like they could be Russian nesting dolls. Like they would all fit nicely inside of each other. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is so true. And then. I don't know if there's anything quite as beautiful. Hulk Hogan wouldn't do this. Babyface Bret Hart would not do this. Andre the Giant six months ago thinks he got screwed out of a world title and he's undefeated for a hundred years and Hulk Hogan was his friend and he didn't get a shot and he's so mad he almost destroys the arena. And then because Bundy got a count out victory and wants a shot at Hogan's belt and wants to be the next champion. Andre the Giant plays support a supporting role to Bundy. Mm. What level of character is that? Yep, yep. Andre, at times, like I said, he often just kind of does his own thing, but he also he knows the value of a family. Uh, so you should you should tell Paul Orndorff about it, about how to support your family instead of uh, raging against them. So yeah, yeah. nice show of uh, partnership here. That blew my mind because. You're so close. And, like, if you want to buy into the story, and that's what we go off of, the story, you know, being undefeated that long and not getting a shot and getting that close and claiming you won, and then you just step aside because fair is fair and your buddy got the count-out victory. Mm. There's so much class in that, and that's probably why, you know, they often lose because there's a man waiting in the wings <laughs> who would never do that. True. And Hulk Hogan... uh 
Dean Arcon lets him know, hey, you know, after losing by a count out, um, I can't. And again, follow the narratives, follow the rhetoric, follow the spin, and you know Hulk Hogan. So Dean Arcon talks about, you know, he beat you. Hulk Hogan says, I can't deny he got his hand raised in victory. <laughs> he beat me versus he got his hand raised in victory are two different conversations. Yep. And then Hogan explains count outs. Uh, and King Kong Bundy wants to wrestle Hogan again, and he wants Andre in his corner. And Hulk Hogan says, you know, if the match happens, which is also interesting language, uh, he will have uh, the Hulkamaniacs in his corner, which he better come stronger than that, Hulk. <laughs> For sure. But he does say he wants the rematch even more than Bundy, and he wants Andre to be in the corner so he can do to him the same thing he did to Bobby Heenan, and I don't think you're going to find it so easy because Andre is not so fragile as Bobby Heenan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he lifted uh, Bobby Heenan by the throat over his head for the record. He did. I don't think it's going to happen. Andre, where you put Heenan's head when you lifted him up, that's where Andre's head is already, so yes. <laughs> it's not going to work. That's where Andre's head is standing on the floor while you're in the ring. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> And I think when we come back, it's going to be January 1988, and it's going to be Hulk Hogan versus uh, Bundy. It is. We are going to see that rematch for sure. Um, the, the last little bit of this show is uh, Vince McMahon, Jesse Ventura, and Gene yes. Okerlund backstage. Vince asks Okerlund, oh, if there's any news about Bobby Heenan's neck injury. And Okerlund says, well, no, but I don't care. And then Jesse Ventura rushes over and pushes him. And it's like, I care. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Heels caring about each other again. It just goes to show. So. That, again, is on the level of the Andre stepping aside. You know, it's just these little shocking moments of just, like, I don't blame Gene because I know what kind of relationship he has with Bobby Heenan. But at the same time, you know, your colleague has fallen. He can't defend himself. And Jesse Ventura just pushes him and, like, you know, that's not right, pretty much. You know, straighten up. Do better. Pretty much. Yep. Yep. Jesse Ventura with the moral authority. Love to see it. What, what a wild! That was one hour of Saturday Night's main event. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, so much, and uh, it's not going to slow down because next time, yeah, it is January of '88, and we do have that Bundy Hogan rematch. We have Greg Valentine versus Coco Beware, which I'm very excited about. Jake Roberts is back on the card. Strike Force is going to be on that card. It's going to be a lot of uh, fun stuff on this next episode. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, start of the year. A lot of people always talking about Hogan's long title reign, but, you know, look at what he hit. You got Bundy in January. I think you got King Harley Race soon after. You got Andre the Giant. Like, I don't know if I want that schedule uh, very much. Right, yeah, no, it's a, it's a hell of a thing to keep up with, and it bears uh, credence to what Bobby Heenan often says is the Hulk Hogan is going to run out of gas one of these days mm -hmm. with all the things that he's doing. So it, it made sense. You know, I don't know. We'll see when it actually happens, but uh, that's the narrative. Yeah, that's so smart, too. He's playing the long game, and this is an era where there's actually a long game can be played because it's four, like four or five years. Yeah. And we're coming on it, though. We're coming to that moment where the, where the World Wrestling Federation is going to stop in its tracks and only covering it like we have. Do I already realize how poetic that next Hogan-Andre matchup is? And I, I, I don't know what how you perfectly do it right in some areas and, and not right in others. But every single show is a bull, bowling point moment 
And all it does, it just slingshots me into, I want to see what's next. Mm, yeah. Yeah, there's an energy about this period and uh, the way things are built up. And I'm really glad that we're covering these shows. Because if we had just done the pay-per-views, I think we would have missed yes. uh, a lot of the value that comes out of this era. So, good stuff. It would not be the same because, again, so much of it's in the small details. So, you got to go to other places. Yeah. But Imagine WrestleMania so. 3 to Survivor Series to WrestleMania 4, you know, like that's the pay-per-view official track. And uh, just it would have been a totally different feeling. Yeah, it's a glance. Yep. And it, it deserves more. We, but we did it, man. We did WrestleMania 3 uh, just with all this, uh, all the monumental status. We did the first Survivor Series. 1987 is now a closed book in the Legacy Series. It is. It is. The next week, we will have Saturday Night's main event. After that, it was the first ever Royal Rumble. Oh, and we got uh, actually a couple of shows leading up to WrestleMania 4. We're going to see Hulk Hogan. His five-year title reign is going to be ended. Things are going to be thrown into even more chaos. I'm very excited, and I may even have a few more bonus matches along the way. So uh, lots to look forward to. Absolutely. Uh, I am in the thick of it. I knew... What we're coming upon is, at least in my childhood, was some of the heart of WWF yeah. 80s for me. I did not know how much I was going to love everything before it. So I'm just thrown out of my narratives, my norms, and I'm just loving the ride so far. Uh, 87 becomes 88. Hulk Hogan and Andre still standing forefront, but they need to check out uh, Ted DiBiase and Randy Savage on either side of them because the times are a changing. Oh yeah, people are coming up fast. Uh, it's funny, yeah. A year from now, we'll have Ultimate Warrior, we'll have Ted DiBiase <laughs> in a totally different context. Uh, things things are going to develop very rapidly here. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited too. I hope you are as well, listeners. Thank you. For coming and uh, listening to our show. It's been a pleasure as always. Uh, if you ever want to shout me out, I'm on Twitter. I am at Spectral Gent. Talk to me about the show. Talk to me about anything. Check out all the Great Britain material on WrestlingHeadlines.com and the forums, which you can get to most easily by going to WrestlingHeadlines.com right now. So do check that out. There's a lot of great, great conversation to be had there. Uh, also check out all the other programs on LOP Radio and all of that wonderful stuff. That is all we've got. We'll be back in the year I was born, 1988, wow. to dive in even further. Until then, Mystic, take us home. Until next time, don't let the legacy be dictated to you. Rewatch, revisit, rewrite. I saw an undiscovered creature. Climbing on the mountainside You know that no one else believed me How about that? With green eyes and white stripes and salted tears I knew that these were just its cautionary features Keep telling myself nothing to fear it's just an undiscovered creature Coming up to meet ya He's the one that's scared It's just an undiscovered creature Coming up to meet ya He's the one that's scared 
The undiscovered creature The undiscovered creature I've never saw this one in books or heard a myth of it Looks like it came from underwater I thought I'd seen every life form But there it is An undiscovered creature Coming up to meet ya He's the one that's scared It's just an undiscovered creature Coming up to meet ya He's the one that's scared The undiscovered creature stripes and salted tears I knew that these were just its cautionary features keep telling myself nothing to fear it's just an undiscovered creature coming up to meet ya he's the one that's scared it's just an undiscovered creature coming up to meet ya he's the one that's scared